program made possible by patrons like you. Welcome to where we celebrate music from the movies. From the golden age to present day, we've got it all covered. We talk to those in the entertainment industry and find out about their favorite scores. You found the podcast, What's the Score? I'm your host, Frank R. Wilson. So sit back, relax, grab a popcorn, and let's see what we'll be hearing today. Recognize that music? It's a favorite of our guest today. He's one of the most prolific composers in Hollywood today. He actually started composing for films while in college as he had shown an ability for it. Quite amazing if you ask me. He's an accomplished jazz musician and composer, but his career took a turn in year 2000 when he wrote a score for the film called Pollock. From there it was full speed ahead, and that would has led to uh, over 100 credits to his name 18 Emmy nominations, and five Emmy Awards. I became aware of him uh, for his work on House of Cards, which, in my opinion, is maybe one of the best TV themes ever written. Please join me in welcoming Jeff Beal to the program. Hi, Jeff. Hey, Frank. How are you? I, I, I'm, I'm good. I'm good. Good. Thanks for Apparently, having me. No, no, my pleasure. It's... um. I'm always excited to have composers on. We have we have composers and we have uh, actors and directors, all kinds of different folks on the program. But I'm always excited to have a composer because I'm not a musician. I don't read music. I don't know anything about music. But I just love film music. So it's it's always fun to talk with someone who knows what they're what they're talking about when uh, when I have you on the program. When we uh, when we have people on, we generally ask for them to tell us a little bit about themselves. And in other words, kind of like. A, Growing up, the formative years, family, uh, you know, those sorts of things, maybe before you started to get into music and just kind of give us a sense of uh, where you come from. Sure. Yeah, I, I was born in Northern California in the San Francisco Bay Area. Um, my family is very musical, although in my immediate family, no professional musicians. There was always music around the house. My mom was and still is a really, a really talented pianist. And my father actually played trumpet in, in high school and wonderful singer and and my grandmother, actually, on my father's side, was an especially musical person. I remember, you know, I started playing trumpet in grade school around third or fourth grade. And uh, once wow. I started playing in the jazz band, by the time I got into middle school, we would go over to her house sometimes on Sundays and she'd go into her vinyl collection. She'd start pulling out things for me. And I'll never forget one of the first records she gave me, which I still have, is a vinyl uh, copy of, of Miles Davis' Sketches in Spain. And shortly wow. after that, kind of blue. So if any jazz fans out there know just how uh, sort of classic, seminal jazz recordings those yeah. are. And, uh, you know, I, I love, I always, you know, there was a piano in the house even before trumpet. I was just sort of tinkling around on it. And, uh, you know, I think every kid grow, growing up, you get, you, you sort of like, you're, you're trying things out. And as soon as I played music, I loved it. I loved playing the trumpet. It was always, I loved learning music. In fact, it's funny, during the shutdown, I've been spending a lot of time practicing Bach on the piano because I'm just not really a great pianist, but I, I, I still, to this day, love just the act of making music. Um, huh. but it, really, it really was when I got into the jazz band, again, in middle school, that things really sort of opened up for me. You know, that whole improvised, world of improvising, uh, was just, it was like the lights went on. I just found this you know, spontaneous expression, composing, and it all sort of mushroomed from there into high school and writing my first charts and in, uh, actually in junior high school. And then in high school, I wrote many, many charts from my, my high school jazz band. That's, and uh, 
You know, that's amazing just, at that age. I was just I was obsessed, you know, with it. I I, so I went, of course, got a lot of great teachers, but I did a lot of self study. Went to the library, took out scores, and uh, there was another sort of epiphany uh, from my childhood, which I think sort of matches the the, the, the earlier one with jazz. And it was when I was, uh, I think, a junior in high school, playing trumpet in the Oakland Youth Symphony Orchestra. And I'll never forget, we were really, really fantastic youth symphony. They're still around today. And we were doing Stravinsky's Ride of Spring. Oh, and uh, I, I didn't know the piece. I, I knew about Stravinsky, but I hadn't really studied his music. And, you know, there's no better way than sitting in the middle of an orchestra to hear that piece of music. You're literally I surrounded bet. by his genius. And, you know, it wasn't film music, but it was music for a ballet. And that was just like, I knew it. It's like, this is what I want to do. I want to write music that tells a story. I want to have all these resources of sonic uh, invention that that he had in the orchestra, and that 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 sort of solidified um, this 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 passion uh, and dream, you know, for for telling stories uh, with 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 the, the the act of composing. That is a terrific story. That is probably one of the more interesting ones that I've heard. Uh, uh, you you know, you can actually pick pin down the actual time when it clicked with you and said, ah, that's what I want to do. I mean, that's, that's, you're very lucky. Not, not many of us have those aha moments. No, it's, it's true. And, uh, you know, uh, I think, you know, part of it is, is being open, uh, and noticing when they happen. Uh, and, yeah. and, and, and I, I was incredibly lucky though. No, no doubt about it. You know, there's so much chance involved in life. Even in my career, I look back and Man, I, you know, I started started writing for film over 25 years ago, and I often think, wow, if I was starting now, I wonder if I'd ha be as lucky and fortunate as I have been the past 25 years with all the incredible opportunities that have have presented themselves to me. But, you know, I I, I know one of the scores we're going to share today involves a, a jazz a jazz score, which is a personal favorite of mine. But I'll tell you a funny story. You know, when when uh, when I was hired for Pollock, I was actually recommended by a dear friend of mine and wonderful composer, Mark Isham. Oh, and okay, yeah. we sort of became friends when I moved down to L.A., not based on being film composers. He knew I was a composer, but also being on jazz trumpet players. Oh, and wow. at the time, at the time, Ed, uh, Ed thought maybe he wanted a jazz score for the film. And, and uh, Mark, I think, was on tour with his band that summer and wasn't available. So, uh, you know, there's all these sort of funny ways in which your life intersects uh, and, and opportunities sometimes come out of, you know, unexpected places. I guess that's the best way to put it. Yeah. That's great. I mean, that's and that opened up the floodgates, didn't it? That's all you needed was that one that one. little. Uh, yeah, I was really lucky. In fact, I was doing a, a, a session, the Zoom session this morning with some students at the Eastman School where we started a film music program and I was checking in on with the professor and we were talking about, you know, so many times what we do as film composers is designed not to be noticed uh, by the audience. And I was lo so lucky in the sense that in Pollock, you know, there was these a couple of really big scenes in the movie where he just paints a mural and it's, you know, two or three minutes of just him at Harris and music. And the music obviously comes right to the forefront of your Consciousness, or another another great example, of course, is main title sequences, like you mentioned with House of Cards. You know, there's these few moments you get uh, in a career that are that are really not the norm. I mean, most of 99% of what we do is is certain service to the story and sonically really weaving in with everything else that is going on. But uh, yeah, the, the, I was fortunate enough to get that film, and I was extra extra fortunate that the music was 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 presented in such a way that it was able to really be noticed by, by a few key people. I remember that, yeah, you, uh, sorry, I was just going to say that, that, uh, Pollock really led to my, my relationship with HBO and, uh, I think Carnival and then Rome thereafter were, were really two, two early credits that really sort of propelled things for me. That's great. That's a great story. That really is. I mean, it's a, I, I love hearing how people kind of get into their professions and that's, that's a really good one. Let's, um, Let's go ahead and, and play a cue right now. There was there was a film I believe you did called uh, Breaking News in Yuba, and uh, we were going to play a cue from that. Maybe tell us a little bit about uh, about that film and uh, how you got connected with it and what we're going to hear. Yeah, this is a little bit of a sneak preview, which is kind of fun to to, to send out. But this was a, a wonderful comedy which I which I started scoring in March and finished, 
And uh, it just got just found out yesterday. It was just announced. It was sold to MGM, so it'll actually be out in theaters in January. Oh, excellent! Uh, stars Alice and Janie and Aquafina and uh, Wanda Sykes and some other great cast members. A really funny, dark comedy. Uh, this woman is sort of a a classic depressed person, and so this piece of music is Sue's. It's basically when we first meet the, the main character, played by. Alice and Janie, this is uh, Sue's birthday cake. Okay. Well, let's sit back and have a listen. This is from the film uh, yet to be released, by the way. So I, I don't know. Maybe we could call this a world premiere, uh, at least of the music. This is from Breaking News in Yuba, and it's written by our guest, Jeff Beale. You have quite a wide variety of of, um, of work that you've done, uh, a lot of TV credits, some films, and I also noticed uh, uh, documentaries as well. Now, uh, just sticking with uh, with TV versus film for a moment, I mean, I think I know what the obvious answer is, but I'd I'd like to dig a little deeper in in it, and that is, what's the difference between or differences that uh, that there are for writing scores for a TV versus uh, versus a feature film. Well, you know, the, the setting is a little different. Sometimes the pacing uh, is different. Uh, obviously, sometimes the resources that you have allocated both time and money in film can be more generous and more expansive, which is mm-hmm. why we hear sometimes these big orchestras in film. But I would say there's definitely a convergence happening, uh, and it's being sped up, obviously, by COVID, where we're all watching things at home. But... Uh, you know, the cinematic sensibility, which used to be this rarefied air that was only existed in the in a theatrical setting, has really come down to what we call the small screen. Uh, mm-hmm. So really, creatively, um, in a way, the differences aren't as pronounced as you may think they are. With the one special, with one caveat, which is that shows that revolve around commercial breaks, that definitely has a different type of cadence to it. Ah. Uh, a little bit of a dramatic compression. Because every every commercial break, you need to end the, the the story needs to end in some way. So there's these sort of I won't call them artificial cliffhangers, but there's a segmentation um, to the ideas that sometimes happens in that in that space versus you know a premium cable or a streaming show, which which tend to flow in their own way. I think streaming really changed the game too, in in a sense. Like House of Cards again is a great example of or Rome or some of the other streaming shows I've done, which were a bit. A, originally just episodic uh, weekly shows on HBO. But, you know, the idea that really a season of a show, like a season of House of Cards, for example, was almost like a really long movie. I mean, it was scripted as 13 hours. And so really the size of the arc was in some ways greater than what you can do in a a, a two or three hour uh, cinematic, cinematic standalone film. So, yeah, there's they're quite different. Um, I enjoy both is, is the short answer. Uh, to to the concept of, of the composing. I, I had never, I mean, I've been doing this show now for about two years, and that's the first time I've ever really heard it expressed that way, That, and I hadn't thought of it, that that mm. commercial television with, with the commercial breaks really requires a, a, a different a different approach. I hadn't, and I understand totally what you're saying, but I hadn't, I hadn't thought of that angle. And yet, yeah. um, and yet the, the, the streaming with, 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 Hulu and Netflix and, and and all of them that are out there, that's really opened up a lot of opportunities for for you and your colleagues, hasn't it? It's 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 insane. I I, I can't imagine. I, I I think you know. There's been lots of people uh, saying this is, is this peak TV. Have we reached it? I don't know. I don't know what it is, but 
And there's a bit of a gold rush, I think, going on by the streaming companies. You know, they all want to beef up their libraries and have their portals and own all their content right. and, and so forth. So there's just so much stuff being produced. And and uh, it's it's really, I think it's one of the real benefits of it. It's really unleashed a lot of creativity and a lot of voices. And I definitely see the risk, the, the risk, the, the amount of risk a streaming company is willing to take on material or, or, or premium cable. It's sometimes a little greater than a network TV, which is solely based on advertising and those, you know, you live or die by those Nielsen ratings, for example. Right. Right. Well, let's, let's listen to another uh, cue that you had uh, shared with us. This is from a film called the biggest little farm. I'd like to hear more about this. Uh, again, if you could just tell us a little bit of how, how that project came to you and wh- what we're going to hear today. Yeah, this is a, a wonderful documentary that was, did really well in theaters last year. And it's, I think, I believe it's on Hulu now still. But, uh, you know, it's a funny story. The producer who I'd worked with previously called me and she says, you know, I'm doing this documentary about a farm and I really, really want to introduce you to the director. And I thought to myself, like, who's going to want to watch that, you know? And then, <laughs> and, then, and then they sent me the movie, Frank, and I was like, wow, this is, this is incredible. I, it was John, John Chester really, really made an amazing film. It, uh, it's sort of a personal a biographical, autobiographical movie movie about his journey with his wife, Molly, who, you know, took over this property in, in here, not too far from where we are in, in Ventura County and uh, really sort of began this process of rejuvenating this 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 piece of land, which uh, it had always been agricultural, but the land really needed, you know, a complete do over. And it's really this beauty becomes this beautiful story of. Uh, metaphor and and real life uh, experience and a whole ex, sort of exposition of this whole concept of regenerative farming, where really you try to use all of the elements on the farm, the the animals, the way you plant the crops, the way you fertilize. Of course, it's all organic, no chemicals. But the yeah. way you sort of but the, the thing that was beautiful about the regenerative uh, model is that it's you're basically leveraging na- nature's own own, dev- own own mechanisms to really. Uh, create this sequel of this, this sequence. He calls it the flywheel, which is a great example. But it's almost huh. like when, once you get it going, um, all of these benefit, beneficial sort of cycles feed in on themselves. And and uh, it, 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 I think it's I think it's a, it, a lot. I've done a lot of films about environmentalism or or uh, you know uh, our relationship to the earth. And you know one of the other ones which I loved was uh, Al Gore's Inconvenient Sequel, which I scored a few years ago. Okay. I think that's thing that's really nice about uh, the biggest little farm is it's it's got a lot of messages in it about taking care of the earth, but it's not a it's not a series of facts and data. It's more like a love song uh, to to the land, and uh, it's really inspiring. I think for for people to watch in terms of just trying to reset our relationship with the natural environment. I mean, if there's been a bit of, if there's been a bit, ever been a time when when I feel like planet Earth is just screaming out at us, you know, this is it. <laughs> when you when you look at the wildfires in California, or obviously, you know, the, the, the ability of of pandemics to spread across, you know, these things are are all related. And of course, horrible storms, uh, tornadoes, and hurricanes. Yeah. You know, so you, uh, you've sold me on it. And where is <laughs> it? I think you said you it was it was streaming now can, uh, for yeah, our audience. It's, it's, it's on. I believe it's still on Hulu. Yeah. Uh, okay. Biggest Little Farm. Just a really beautiful film and beautiful cinematography yeah. too. Oh, excellent. Well, let's, let's have a listen to Jeff's uh, work on this. This again is from the film Biggest Little Farm. And once again, it's written by our guest, Jeff Beal.
we just uh, we were just talking about a documentary, and I and I have noticed when looking at your credits, you've you've done a lot of documentaries, and I'm curious if kind of like the question about the uh, TV versus film, I'm curious if documentaries require a different skill set or a different approach from you know doing a narrative, you know, a drama or an action movie or something like that. Is there is there anything different you try to do? Yeah, it is definitely a different experience. Obviously, it's not scripted. Uh, you don't have actors. Uh, so often in times, the music has a more uh, important role to play, almost, I wouldn't say as a narrator, but as a really engaged storyteller. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, that's, that's another thing. They tend to be a lot of work because this wasn't always the case, but I, I think I credit like filmmakers like Michael Moore, who, who, who have done this for, gosh, probably over two, two decades, who really sort of uh, popularized, I would say, this idea of sort of the the documentary that had a cinematic sensibilities. He always used used music in his films. Uh, he and and I, I saw a lot of his first movies in the theater, whether it was Fahrenheit. Uh, I can't remember all all those films, but you know, Roger right. Me, um, and then uh, all all these films, you know, um, and 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 really, I, what I was going to say is, audiences have really become to uh, accept and appreciate scores and documentaries that are more like what we might think of as traditional movie scores. So it, much like what I said about TV and film, there is a convergence happening. But I, I would also say about the documentary space in general, uh, when I look out at the world of stuff being created, I think I feel very fortunate to have so many of these opportunities in the sense that I feel like documentary film is one of the most creative areas of filmmaking right now. Uh, hmm. It just seems to be full of, of invention uh, and excitement. I think, I think one thing it, it has done for adult viewers who uh, might not be as enamored of, you know, uh, movies, you know, like sort of the Marvel Universe types of movies. Or <laughs> a, lot of the, a lot of the movies that, that made their way, for example, into the multiplexes the last few decades have been really steered towards a younger audience, I oh, would yeah. say. And, no and I think I think documentaries um, in a way have sort of supplanted, you know, films that that a wider age group can <laughs> can enjoy. <laughs> I mean, I say this to myself as a guy in his 50s. Um, but, you know, they're, they're, the other thing that I think is really significant about documentary films in general is that, uh, again, in, if we look at the media world where sort of news gathering and news reporting has become this weird sort of amalgam of entertainment, <laughs> infotainment versus you yeah. know, just cold reporting, which is, you know, I grew up, you know, in the late 60s, early 70s with the more traditional Walter Conkright and Dan Rather kind of Tom Brokaw years. And so this idea of lack of ob objectivity on the part of what we'd say is maybe cable news shows, both on the left and the right, you know, documentary film seems to me like this last bastion of really investigative reporting where you can really do this deep dive into a subject matter and really feel informed about something without uh, without without necessarily maybe getting a, a political slant or a purely entertainment approach to the news. Uh, it's, I think there, there's a social uh, informational uh, aspect to documentaries, which is really sort of filling a void that we have right now. Yeah. Yeah. And I correct me if I'm wrong. I want to say this next thing that we were going to explore is is another doc uh the, yes the, the film i'm talking about is jfk destiny betrayed and yeah and if i if i recall right from seeing it from looking it up is this is an, an oliver stone project is that right this is this is my my second project with oliver and of course pro a lot of your viewers probably know oliver's wonderful film from the 1990s jfk right one of, I, it's one probably my favorite film of oliver's and one of my favorite john williams scores but uh, this is a four-hour uh, documentary that Oliver has just, this is another preview that he's just been finishing. Uh, and it's, it's really all about JFK's legacy. It's obviously about the assassination and all of the things that we know now versus we knew then. So there's definitely a lot of that conspiratorial um, evidence and, 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 and information. But there's also a wonderful examination of JFK's foreign policy legacy. Um, huh. which was really, I didn't know that much about, I mean, being born in 1963, I didn't live through that or, but you know, the, the film is, is based inspired by a book of the same name. And, and, uh, the thesis I would say of the film is that, you know, and this is very factual, you know, JFK's whole, whole foreign policy, um, 
stance, both as a senator and as a president, was really one of detente and, and encouraging uh, peaceful, peaceful relations with, with other countries. And, and so part of the ache of the last act of our documentary is sort of a what if kind of feeling. What if JFK wouldn't have been killed? What, what policies would he, would he have been enacted? Would we, maybe we would, would have stayed out of Vietnam. Maybe the Cold War would have moved in a different fashion. These, these kind of things. Um, yeah. So I believe this, this theme I, I shared with you is a, it's called the peaceful vision. And, and it's basically a theme that is expressing that idea. For those of you who know John Williams' uh, beautiful score <clears throat> from JFK, you'll also hear a little bit of an homage to it. I played trumpet on the theme, and there's a bit of a musical homage in instrumentation to, oh, to the feeling, the feeling of, of John's uh, score for JFK, the movie. Well, excellent. Now, let's have a listen to this. This is, again, from uh, an Oliver Stone uh, documentary. It's called JFK, Destiny Betrayed. And the music is once again written by our guest, Jeff Beale.
We'll get back to our program in a minute. This program is done for the love of film and film music, plain and simple. However, it does take a huge investment in time and in fees for me to make the program work for you. I don't sell commercial time and don't really want to on this program. Rather, I'm kind of like a, a public broadcasting station. I need support from listeners like you. For as little as $3 a month, you can help me uh, uh, offset the time spent in putting the program together. Or maybe you just think of it as leaving a tip in the tip jar. Either way, if you can join up, there will be bonuses, like an additional 10 to 15 minute segment with our guest every week, where we'll play additional cues as well as ask us some extra questions. And it's going to be only available to patrons. How do you sign up? Well, it's simple. You go to patreon.com slash what's the score, and that's all one word. That's patreon, that's P-A-T. R-E-O-N dot com slash what's the score. Check it out. We'd be grateful for your support. That's patreon.com. I always love asking this question of most composers because it's always kind of fun to hear about it. What's the least amount of time that you were given to, to finish a project? Hmm. Wow. Uh, I'd have to think, you know, I guess, I guess, you know, probably it would be in the TV, uh, the TV world. You know, I think just when I was doing Monk, which I, we did over a hundred episodes of that. I would say <laughs> some, there might've been some cases where I, I got a I got a videotape or a DVD in the mail in the messenger, and I probably had a day or two to write the score and turn it in. Holy smokes! Probably probably twenty minutes of music or twenty five minutes of music, and that was it. You know, so that's probably the fastest. Um, some films, I some films. Pollock was a replacement score. I was the third composer. I think I I composed the bulk of that score over about two and a half weeks. Um, wow! So. You know, it's interesting uh, when you're a jazz musician. My, I don't always attach a lot of value to the time I've spent on something, to, to the final product, just uh, in the sense that uh, when you're an improviser, sometimes your, your best ideas come when you're not judging it, when you're not sitting back critically and just sort of going for it. Uh, so huh. I think in, in general, for a film composer, having a background uh, in jazz, for example, is always a great a great skill to have. I know some of my heroes, such as John Williams and Jerry Goldsmith and s several other composers have a background in jazz. So that's, that's a good, a good sort of prerequisite or a good skill to have. If you, if you happen to go I, into. Yeah. I, I mean, I can see that because it, it's always fascinated me. You were talking about uh, the improvisation that jazz musicians do. I mean, for a time I used to think, is that what's written on the sheet music? Is that what they're playing? I mean, how can they just instantly, come up with something that just works so well and but but that's that's what you're doing isn't it i mean it's just off the top of your head you just you, it, it works <laughs> yeah absolutely and of course when you learn to improvise jazz you learn so much there's so much material you sort of ingest scales and patterns and chord scale relationships but yeah the great improvisers can really create on the spot a melody that they've never played before that somehow just feels beautiful and 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 timeless even you know miles davis is a great example some of his classic solos are just feel it they're they're like compositions you know they're you you could write them down i mean often the great jazz solos do get transcribed and played again or used as, as study material did, and did were you were you kind of a fan of what i what I, what i guess was called west coast jazz i mean there are, there are different forms of it you know what i'm yeah, talking I, about i i bet i bet uh, yeah for sure i love chet baker jerry mulligan i wouldn't say i focused right. on that but, um, you know, coming from California, I think there's a slightly different sensibility here than than the East Coast. Um, sure. For sure. Absolutely. Yeah. And Claire Fisher, too. Um, you know, there's something about that which which I've always really enjoyed. 
you've you've already mentioned a couple of of my favorites. I am kind of curious. Other than other than you mentioned John Williams and uh, and Jerry Goldsmith, are there there are other composers out there that you've admired through the years that uh, you know yeah. just composers that you like or yeah I mean well the, there's there's always the, there's three names when I get that question and the other third third one is I think you've done a show about him is Ennio Mor- Morricone ah so, yep one of one of my one of my great heroes you know just um, in each of those three I always admired them both as musicians and as film composers uh, the music they wrote I I and write I always felt was just so so fascinating so beautiful did you have um, a chance have you had a chance to meet uh, any of them i've met john uh, a few times i've worked with him many years ago when i was just starting out in my career the other two know uh mm. but i feel like my relationship with all of them is really with their work it would be great to meet them um but i feel like uh my re- what i what i love about them what i what i treasure about them is that work that the, the work that they've created and and talk about prolific all three of those gentlemen have just it's amazing the volume of work that they produce it's just mind-boggling um let's see we were going to look at another film i think this one still hasn't come out yet we're, we're getting like lots of advanced uh listens to some new stuff that's going to be coming out the film i believe is called athlete a is that correct yes it actually Tell is us- in release yeah uh, Athlete A is a documentary. It actually is in release now on Netflix. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, it came out, I believe, in June or July. Uh, the The soundtrack has not been released yet. Uh, we're working on it. We're hoping to release this digitally soon, um, as well as JC bring uh, its release, but the score is, is coming soon in terms of a record release. But Athlete A was a, a wonderful film. Um, this was made by Bonnie Cohen and John Shank, the same filmmakers whom I worked with on an inconvenient sequel, the Al Gore movie. Oh, okay. Um, Athlete A is a, is a movie about the women's gymnastics uh, scandal, which sort of broke about, I would say, I want to say 18 months ago or so, about you know sexual abuse uh, and also just sort of the general systemic um, abuse in the gymnastics world itself, which extends mm. not only to USA, but also extends over to, especially to Eastern Europe. And so really tough story. Uh, I love their, the point of view in the movie. It was really told by the point of view of several characters, some of them retired uh, gymnasts, many, a few of those uh, former Olympians. Uh, one, one young gal who really was athlete A, the first, the first victim to publicly confront this problem. Uh, you know, it's a tough film, but, but really well done. And and one of the things there was a scene towards the end of the movie I just loved. Uh, well, I didn't love it, but I I loved the director's idea of how to score it. Let's put it that right. way. Okay. And, and she said, you know, what if we had? She pitched to me. We talked a lot about the the the, the girls, the voice, the, the use of the female voice as a character, and there is quite a bit of singing all throughout the score. The solo voice, which kind of represents our our lead character, uh, Maggie. But uh, towards the end of the film, there's a great. A uh, very powerful scene where many of the accusers of Larry Nasser uh, were allowed the opportunity to come forth and make victim statements to him, and it was this beautiful cathartic coming together of all these brave women. I mean, gosh, they're oh, much wow. like you're sixty, and and Bonnie Bonnie had this idea. Um, she said she said I'm thinking about using the San Francisco. What do you think about using the San Francisco Girls Choir for the end title of the film? And I thought, oh, I just, I got shivers. I said, oh, that sounds amazing. You know, um, I love, I love writing for voices and I've written quite a bit, a lot of choral music. And, and so I said, yes, that's a great idea. This is back in, uh, I believe it was like late October and we needed to deliver the film by December. Um, so this is probably even November when we were having this discussion, but long story short, I, I thought, yes, let's, let me write that. And let me see if I can also use the same theme for this scene. When the, when the when the women confront uh, their accuser, and and so this piece is that version uh, of that theme, and uh, it's it's a really beautiful, powerful statement. Uh, not of, of uh, it's a it's a statement of of of, of their their resilience. Uh, it's really yeah. uh, and 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 of their 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 community and the strength uh, with which they. Which we all, which, with which they all unite against this this horrible, horrible episode uh, in in their lives. 
Yeah, my uh, my wife and I actually listened to this yesterday and just just fell in love with it. It's very powerful. Oh. I'm looking forward to our audience having a chance to uh, listen to it. This is from the film Athlete A uh, that Jeff was just telling us about, and I believe you uh, f- forgive me. You said it is it's available now on streaming or. Yeah, the film is on Netflix, and the uh, okay. the, the, the music will be out soon as well. Yeah, as as a as a, okay, yeah, a digital as a digital release. Yeah, yeah, I think you're sure to enjoy this particular piece. So uh, sit back, relax, and enjoy. Has, um, how has film composing changed in the, you, you, I think you've mentioned roughly about 25 years that you've been doing it. I, I'm, I'm guessing, well, certainly technology has changed things a lot. And uh, I, I don't even know if you ever used a moviola before. That used to be the old thing that people would use. But you know, any anything that has struck you as to how the the business or how the, 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 the art of scoring has changed any over the years? Yeah, definitely. In fact, I think I did my math a little wrong. If I go back to Cheap Shots, it's probably been closer to 30 years now. Uh, oh, okay. I, I do remember at Eastman, uh, they, they'd hit, my, my teacher there in film scoring had a, had a moviola, and we used it. I used it once, uh, but mm-hmm. only, for, only for a student film assignment at Eastman. Ever since then, it was videotaped. But I think you know, the story of filmmaking is, of course, one of technology and, and uh, you know, uh, the, the use of technology as a tool for the composer, boy, that's just changed drastically over the, over the 30 years I've been doing it. Um, you know, I, I, I certainly did all my music in the, in the, in the earlier days, handwritten scores, 
uh, eventually computer scores, but really the writing the music, the writing of the music, this whole this whole idea of the digital workflow has really, really revolutionized um, the way we do our work, but also the way we can intersect um, with the filmmakers. You know, it used to be before when everything was on physical media, whether that's the film or the magnetic tape that music would be recorded on, you know, making doing right. edits or, or making changes were really it was an incredibly laborious and expensive proposition. So there was a very uh, logical workflow designed where basically every other decision would be would be made in terms of the film, especially in terms of the editing before the composer would even start writing. And that was really designed because that was the only way you could do it and not, you know, bankrupt the production. You know, uh, so, you know, and that that was most mostly the case in my in the earlier part of my career, I would say uh, not all the time. But 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 one of the interesting things I like about the digital workflow is it, it's made the the sort of dance between the composer and the filmmaker a little more interactive in the sense that, you know, often many of the scores I've written, um, probably everything we play today has been written against a cut, which at some point changed and the filmmaker made changes to the mm. film. So, and that's that's fun, and that's fun for the not only for the composer but also the filmmaker. Having the presence of music can actually influence and help a filmmaker sort of decide, um, find find their the, the tempo of the film and the presence of music can often influence other choices in the editing and so forth. Uh, so that's definitely uh, yeah. changed. You know, we're all we're all doing this now with with COVID, but you know, the idea of long distance collaboration. Technology, you know, for years has facilitated that for us as well. I mean, I've done a lot of films, uh, not a lot, but several of the projects I've done have been maybe for directors who I never met in person and who were maybe in New York or in Europe or other places. Wow. And again, you know, we send files back and forth, we'll Skype or whatever and have meetings that way. So, um, the, yeah. I know that, um, I may get into this a little bit later into particular examples of yours, but. I am curious what your thoughts are on this. It's uh, there have been some films, I guess, or some projects that have been done that didn't require musicians. It was all done electronically, I guess, for lack of a better way of saying it. Um, you think it's going that way, or or can we, or can we? We can't replace live musicians, really, can we? You know, uh, and that was another obvious part to the, the previous question, which I sort of did fail to mention. But yeah, obviously the tools, the digital tools for the composer are wonderful. Um, even if I do record an, a score with, with, with real instruments, um, the first time the director hears it, it'll, it'll usually be a mock-up with samples, um, uh, which aren't real musicians. It's me performing a, a digital sample. And, you know, it's, it's compl complicated and it's certainly... Some of the scores I do uh, for for you know, an extremely fast timeline or at a super low budget, you you might have mostly electronic music and only a few instruments. Um, there's other, the other cases scores where they're purely electronic by design. Whether you think of things like uh, Stranger Things or uh, well, yeah. I, Ro I Robot, so there is a there is also another uh, style where electronic music tends to be the norm. Uh, I have another project out now, uh, uh, a miniseries on the Challenger, which is just now on Netflix. Where I, right? Again, again by design, I, I used a lot of electronic sounds, and that was part of the palette. You know, now, it's probably it's pro probably my own preference as a trumpet player and someone who plays in orchestras. I just love real instruments. To me, uh, to answer your question, there's no way you'll ever replace the emotion of an orchestra or a string quartet or a jazz bass or a flute or an oboe yeah. um or the human voice uh, another good example do you do uh, you uh oh, i'm sorry i didn't mean to cut you off no, but i'm curious ahead. do you do do you play on a lot of your projects because you mentioned you played a trumpet on one of them i mean is that is that something you kind of look forward to doing or do you i do i mean i'm a i'm a music maker so I, yeah that's something i probably the thing i enjoy most about it um you know i play piano on all my scores if you hear piano on House of Cards or whatever, you know, that's me playing huh. piano. I okay. play, play jazz trumpet, so obviously, you know, uh, anything with a trumpet usually, whether it's uh, the ones we're going to hear next in the Jay Sebring film or uh, definitely on House of Cards, you know, that's me playing trumpet. So I, I really enjoy that. And, and, of course, the electronics, when we say something's from a computer, it doesn't mean a computer played it. Um, so electro the electronic aspects of my score, and this is pretty similar to all the composers. I mean, I play those in. 
uh, by hand as little piano performances, you know, and there's an art to that too, in terms of, you know, uh, playing an electronic instrument in a way that makes it expressive and, and feel like a, like a musical gesture. Well, let's, uh, you, you had mentioned it. We were going to play, I think we're, we've got a couple of cues we're going to play, uh, from this project of yours, Jay Sebring, Cutting to the Truth. Maybe tell us a little bit about that project, how it came to you, and, and what we're going to hear. Yeah, this is a, a really wonderful uh, documentary that just 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 released on demand. Uh, I believe it's on iTunes and Amazon. And Jay Sebring uh, was a sort of revolutionary uh, guy who, who started treating the idea, the art of cutting men's hair as something other than it was in the time he was starting it, which was a very sort of boring um, palette of a few standard men's haircuts. He really became known as the premier fashion uh, hairstylist uh, for men's hair in Hollywood during the, during huh. the 60s. And, you know, he see you work for, you know, every, he cut everybody's hair, the Rat Pack, famous many actors. He was went to all the movie studios. Um, he knew a lot of people. Quincy Jones is in the movie, uh, some other really well-known actors. Uh, and tragically, uh, he was also romantically involved for a time with Sharon Tate. And Jay oh. was at, at that house uh, on that fateful night and was one of the victims of the Manson killings. Um, no film, kidding. Yeah, the film. So the film, in fact, if you saw Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Jay is actually right. in the movie a little bit. In fact, Quentin Tarantino is is in our film as well, and he has some really nice things to say about, about Jay. Huh. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I love doing the film uh, for a couple of reasons. One is it was intensely personal because the Jay's nephew, Anthony DeMaria, actually made the film. So it was made by somebody that knew Jay and was really, you know, part of the the purpose of the film was to rescue and redefine Jay's legacy beyond other victims, which is basically, you know, what he was known as, one of the other four people killed mm. um, in the Manson's killings uh, after Sharon Tate. And, uh, you know, really celebrate this, this, this amazing life he had, which was really being a pioneer. I mean, very few people, um, Jackson Pollock was another one, uh, who can take a style, uh, who can do something in a space that is completely different and inventive and reinvent a world uh, so that it's once once they've done, made their mark, nobody will look at it exactly the same way. And and uh, Jay Sebring in his, in his own little corner of the universe was was one of those people. Huh. You're you uh, are you do you have a background in marketing? You really do a nice job <laughs> describing these these uh, these projects. That's great. Yeah, well, thank it's you. Like I've got I've got a whole list of things, new things I need to watch now. There you go. Uh, well, thank um, you. I, I want to, I, 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 I don't, but I do, I, when I teach film scoring, I talk a lot about the story because I feel like good film music needs to be, yeah, it needs to be good music, but it also needs to tell the story. And the more you understand the story you're telling, the better the music will be. Exactly. Uh, and, and it brings to mind my, my hero or my favorite composer was John Barry. Oh, and yeah. It, and towards the end of his career, he never called himself a music, a film composer anymore. He called himself a musical dramatist. And I thought, actually, yeah, that fits. That maybe is a little bit more descriptive of what you guys do. Absolutely. You know, you're really a storyteller, a filmmaker, a dramatist, you know, uh, absolutely. Well, let's yeah, let's have a listen to this. There, like I said, there's two cues here. Um, one's called First Salon. And yeah, this, pioneering style. Yeah. And, oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, uh, mention two things about these. One, first salon. You know, we talked about West West Coast. Uh, we talked. Well, I'm sorry. We talked about Pollock earlier. You know, first salon is a theme in the movie that is very much in the spirit of what I did for my Pollock score, which is it's almost like this Americana kind of upbeat, uh, but very almost modern sounding piece of music. Um, the the second one pioneer pioneering style um and i hope i have these right i'm pr pretty sure i do the second one is sort of something i yep. love doing yep. which, which i don't always get to do but um i love the opportunity to write a jazz score and this film in the temp music and what the director wanted was just screaming out, out for that kind of cool 60s almost west coast jazz okay. uh, kind of feeling so that second cue is very much sort of an homage to that kind of uh you know, Paul Desmond, Chet Baker kind of world. Ah, terrific. Let's uh 
let's enjoy this, ladies and gentlemen. We're listening to a, a couple of cues from the movie Jay Sebring, Cutting to the Truth, written by our guest, Jeff Beal. One thing uh, on top of your music that uh, that I admire about you, and you and I have had quick chat about this, um, I asked for your permission if we could bring it up, and it uh, I don't know if a lot of people know, but uh, you're one of the uh, one of those unfortunate folks that is suffering from a form of multiple sclerosis, uh, relapsing remitting MS, I guess. Uh, yeah. Having someone in my family with the same condition, I, ladies and gentlemen, I can tell you, that's not easy to have a full-time career and, and manage that condition. I, I don't know how you do it. Uh, well, well, thanks, Frank. And, you know, I, I'm like you, I'm very lucky to be married to a very supportive wife uh, who's, who's helped me continue to do what I love. Um, you know, I was diagnosed, this is pretty common. I, I was diagnosed in my 40s, uh, 12, hmm. 13 years ago. And uh, I probably had it much longer, but... Uh, uh, there were some very uh, dramatic things, uh, all numb on one side of my body, which right. sort of were precursor to the, what I have. And, and I basically have relapsing remitting uh, MS. Um, you know, it, it, there's a lot of variables and, and, and there's a lot of chance involved. I mean, it's like COVID. We've seen perfectly healthy people, even young people, you know, perish from this and other people not. And so I, I, I can't credit uh, all of my proactive steps, and I've taken many um, to try to stay healthy uh, as, as the reason. But, you know, I love what I do. And, and for, so for me, a life worth living is, is one where I'm still creating music. Um, I, I, I did a TED Talk several years ago where I talked about this specifically. But I, I do feel like being a musician is actually part of my brain health uh, regimen in a way, because I know- I can that see that. You know, uh, um, neurologists know when they study the brain, you know, musicians uh, have 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 there's areas of the brain that are that are developed uh, more than a normal brain in people that that are musicians. 
Huh. And, and that it's it's the uh, corpus callosum, and it's it actually connects the left and the right hemisphere. Uh, in my particular scans, uh, early on my, my most of my MS lesions just happen to be in that section of my brain. So go figure. But oh my gosh! Anyways, long story short, you know, listen, MS is no no picnic. Is a lot of mystery. We don't have a cure with a capital C. We don't even really know what what's causes it. But right. but you know, in terms of uh, brain health, uh, especially neuroplasticity and trying to keep my brain healthy. I know that this, the very practice of music is stimulating uh, my, my brain health. And it's, you know, it's not unlike any other aspect of your health. Um, you know, it's so I, I, I do feel like it feeds me emotionally. It also f- probably feeds me physically uh, and neurologically uh, still doing what I love to do. Yeah, that's great. And fortunately, there are some revolutionary treatments that are going on that are helping people as well. So it's, it's glad to hear that you're managing it. I mean, you, you never, like you say, you don't get cure of it, but it sounds to me like you're managing it as best you can. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, well, Jeff, where do, um, where do people go to learn about you and your upcoming projects or or anything else that's going on? Is there a place online they can visit? A a couple. Yeah. I have a website, uh, jeffbeal.com, which is full of, of playlists of, of, movie music and film music and some of my concert pieces. Uh, I, I do tend to a lot, announce a lot of things on, on Twitter, uh, Jeff Beal Music, at Jeff Beal Music. So those two places are probably a good place to start. Uh, I, I don't have a fan page on Facebook, but I'm also on Facebook. You can, you can follow me there. Uh, yeah. And, and uh, so you also announced, because I know you said there might be a chance that some of these Scores are going to get released, I guess. Uh, you'll announce it when that happens, I guess. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. I'll I'll announce these, uh, you know, on the usual usual channels, especially Twitter and on the socials. So, uh, right. Well, I, goodness, I I can't thank you enough. I've I've just had a delightful time talking with you. I, I hope you've enjoyed it as well. Absolutely, my my pleasure, Frank. And I love the fact that you're not a musician, but you're a fan of film music. You know, <laughs> it's, it's I, music we create. We're very lucky because it goes all around the world, and and it is a form of literature that I feel like people are really discovering and celebrating. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's like it's like I can't understand why I like certain things. I can't explain it musically, but I can just say if you listen to this, whatever they're doing, I like that. You know, so it's, yeah, it's kind of strange, but I. Uh, I appreciate again you you're coming on. We're, ladies and gentlemen, remember it's uh, jeffbeal.com, jeffbeal.com, where you can get more information about Jeff and what he's doing. Um, that's going to about wrap it up for us today. Uh, there's only one thing left to say, and that's simply this. My name is Frank R. Wilson. My time's up. I thank you for yours. Thanks for listening to What's the Score.